Hello and welcome to the Private Practice Made Perfect podcast. I'm Cathy Love. I started life as an OT, had a, an amazing, crazy private practice which I sold. And what I do now is help allied health business owners create a business that serves them, the time, the money, the joy that they absolutely deserve. And this is where my idea for the podcast started. What I want to do is to capture how hard allied health business owners in Australia work to achieve their dreams, to support their teams, to create amazing outcomes for their clients. So sit back, beverage of joys, drive safely, walk carefully, however you're listening in, and I hope you absolutely enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Mish Kumar Johnson, your very first podcast. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I've been um, kind of hanging out for uh, this conversation as as well, because the work you do is so interesting and why you do it is so interesting. And it's been a pretty fast and furious, what, seven or eight months since you started up. Absolutely. And I think that just talks about me as a person, but also the great support and the great investment of people into us so over the you know last seven or eight months to come along for the journey. And yeah, we're pretty privileged and lucky, but we're here. We're happy. So tell us about July 2022. Okay, so July 2022, I was working um, at addiction medicine at St. Vincent's Hospital. Um, I was in that team and I was doing a pretty incredible role. And what I found was 10 years of being a social worker in community almost coming to a head because the medical sector doesn't allow for much creativity and moving outside the box. And I went, stuff this in some ways and said, we know through research and through lived experience and through, you know, community experience that we could be doing more in so many more creative ways. So I said, why not? Why not me? You know, my wife was great and on board. And so off we went and got an ABN and started. So did you literally decide overnight? Like you just resigned and said, or did you kind of go part-time and? Yeah. Um, so I was part-time. I have to say the Iceberg Foundation, and I'm sure we'll get into it, actually started a little while ago, a few years ago, whilst I was figuring out what it was going to be, et cetera. But July, I kind of went, no, this is it. You know, I, I've done about 10 years in community sector and I want more. I want different and I want my creative side to come out. And with me, I I have ADHD. So whilst things seem like I've done it overnight, it's been a lot of mental processes happening. Um, so, yeah, in some senses overnight, but in others, weeks and weeks of toying with the idea. It's that Bradbury concept, isn't it, that he kind of got over the finish line first but on the back of 20 years of absolutely years. Absolutely. And just so great that I get to do it in my own community as a queer person and a non-binary person for my community. It was we're such a resilient and brave and gritty and fun community that it's beautiful to be able to yeah, take that and make something beautiful out of it. So the Iceberg Foundation started way back. Walk us through that because it's amazing. Yeah, it started in 2013 or 14. I just, I'd finished uni. I was working, um, 
I was working in Ballarat and then I came to Melbourne and I was really missing my home in India. And so I went back home and I worked for about a year where I um, I used to run home for people or young women being rescued from trafficking. And I taught in a small school and we saw a lot of programs, these really cool, innovative programs around social emotional learning. And that's always been a passion of mine. Right. And so I kind of thought, oh, I wonder what that would be like back in Melbourne. So I came back and I started writing a social emotional program, learning program for students and schools. Mm-hmm. Got to the end of that, was really excited to launch, started talking to schools, had some schools on board. And then I thought, I can't ethically launch this because I'm using the same program in Broad Meadows as I am in Walburn. But the degrees of separation are huge. The cultural differences, the living experiences, whatever, right? And so I stepped away completely, scrapped the program and went, I clearly need to learn a little bit more and kept it on the side, kept researching, kept delving and then when it came to a point, I went, no, I, I'm, I'm ready. We we started the Iceberg Foundation with the clinical side of things, but also the self-model with where we work with um, teachers and schools around their well-being because we recognise that if teachers' well-being are great, the social emotional learning and environment of young people and students is much more solid. Yeah. Let's drill into the iceberg um, foundation a bit more your logo is beautiful thank how can you. you how can you paint that picture for listeners and why did you do what you did with the logo as such yeah great thank you um and it's such a great question I um we called it the iceberg foundation because everyone talked about this it's now we start saying shadow selves or this 90 percent of us that we don't really get into or get to explore in a safe way and so if if you're listening you can picture an iceberg underneath the water is this really this explosion of curves and circles and our creativity and uh you know passions coming out and my favorite design Indian design is a paisley and so there's a paisley in there and really representative of all of us that we bring and then above the water is really hard angles and lines and almost reflective surfaces that we have to almost impression manage and keep afloat whereas the underneath sometimes doesn't get to the light of day and it was so important to us that we work with both so yeah we were pretty lucky so how does that that story really flow through all that you do in Quite a few ways. Um, One, no one who comes to our practice ever feels, or I suppose we really make it a point to not make anyone feel like they owe us anything. They don't owe us outcomes or they don't owe us dropping the mask as such. And most people in the practice, most of the practitioners are neurodivergent. And so we have this great concept of masking and we don't ask people to unmask when they come, if they feel comfortable and if they want to, it's a space we allow. But we also say to people, we are here for the days you present with your right angles and, you know, your mission managing and whatever. And we're also here for the days that seem messy but are creative, you know, and we will work with you to find you in all of that and to support you in steering what life looks like towards the goals you want to get to. So we're pretty privileged to walk with people on that journey. Yeah, yeah. 
And in looking at your website, your vision and your mission and your purpose are just so aligned, really unusually aligned and unusually detailed for a very coherent perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think with the GLBTIQA plus communities, we we often have to have that. We have to have a purpose that is aligned with who we are, just given the spaces we have to navigate and the people we have to navigate. And it was really important. And I am a values-based practitioner and clinician and even in my personal life. And it was incredibly important to me that we got that piece right. And we showed people that we kind of walk the walk and don't just tokenistically put things on the website. It was really important to us that they float. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your team. Ah, uh, my my wonderful team. Honestly, I'm so lucky. Um, so we have a, a smallish team, I suppose you would say, given um, there's a few of us, but they all came on board not that long ago, given we are only, you know, quite young. We're eight months old. And it started with um, the trauma-informed gardener and cleaner. And what I was seeing in a lot of work I did was people wanted to get out in the garden or wanted to go to green spaces in COVID or wanted to have a house that reflected internally what they wanted to see externally, but didn't know how to do that alone, whether that was because of neurodivergence, whether that was because of trauma, or whether that was because I am overwhelmed and I don't know where to start. You know, and I know if I look at my backyard, I just stopped looking at my backyard now because it's a little bit scary for me. It was that thing of I just need someone to body double or I need someone to gamify. I need someone who at the last minute if I cancel and go, I just, please, I can't do today, would understand. And so we brought on someone who has worked in bushland regeneration for over 10 years as a gardener for over 10 years, but also had a good understanding of trauma. And then we trained them in trauma principles. So that's our trauma-informed gardener who's also neurodivergent, so understands what that's like, you know, in the home. After that, um, we I was pretty lucky to have a psychologist that I work with elsewhere express interest and who's also neurodivergent and on the spectrum, as am I, and say, hey, I'm really loving what you do. And one of the things in our office is we have a full sensory room. We have an egg chair, the, it's black out, there's sand, there's, you know, movement boards. And he kind of went, if I was going to therapy, that's where I'd want to go. And <laughs> I love to go. Absolutely. And often whenever, you know, when people come in and participants come in and they go for the egg chair, he goes, you sure you don't want the Ottoman? They're like, no, no, I'm fine. He goes, yeah. So it was. I'll share the egg chair with the clients. Just <laughs> Okay, so a psychologist joined. Yeah, and then we had um, a social worker who came from overseas and loved what we did and found that, loved the language that we use, um, things like we take therapy participants rather than clients, loved the strengths-based office that we've built and the team, and so came on board. And then I am really passionate about people's lived experience being part of and living experience being part of their support system and so we have a peer um, support worker psychosocial support worker on board as well who has a psych background and is also neurodivergent and on the spectrum and so just have this incredible team and we then got another social worker from um, from overseas to write our self-model resources and is now going to be part of the clinical team and 
I think the most important people are our admin staff who have just sometimes been thrown in <laughs> and keep up to the task, but never kind of waver and they are just absolutely the rock. So yeah, pretty lucky to have an incredible team. Good crew, good crew. And what about your role with this? How does your week look? Oof, yeah. Um, so at the moment, interestingly enough, I, whilst I am quote unquote CEO and principal practitioner, um, I also work elsewhere because I think it's really important to not be so close to the practice that I spend all my time and almost smother that um, I went for a job recently with another practice and I said to them, I want to be an employee because I don't want to make decisions. I don't okay. want to, you know, I don't want to have to think about anything. I don't want to have to come up with solutions. I just want to come in here. And for me, that's really important. So I have somewhere else that's around my own outcomes and stuff. But my day looks like um, I have quite a few on my caseload. So I do quite a lot of clinical practice, but then I also do quite a bit of supervision for social workers and psychs and counsellors, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I do the self-model. I do all of the back end of the Iceberg Foundation. Um, I jump in on admin sometimes, given we're so small and new. Mm-hmm. What else? I also mentor. I also, um, we do weeding in the backyard with people as well if they don't want to chat. So my week looks varied and massive, but a lot of fun. Massive kind of was where my uh, listening went to because it sounds as though you've almost got three full-time jobs. (laughs) I actually, um, I I looked at it yesterday and I have, I think, four part-time jobs and a full-time job. So it's it's a lot um, and I'm very blessed to have great supports around me that help me sometimes keep my head afloat but also remind me that there's more to life than you know, whatever I'm trying to create and karaoke is just as important. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. How much do you enjoy the business side of things? I absolutely love the business. Do you really? Oh, that's I good. Do. I am one of those people that just thrive. You should have seen me when I was building the website. So the whole website I did myself, all of the resources, everything, you know, all the Insta posts, for example, I do myself and my wife often says, oh, you must be working on the business side of things because the grin on your face right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I think for me, it's an absolute privilege to come from a place where I grew up in the Northwest. I grew up with not much money. It was a single parent household. And to get to a point where I can work on my own business, I'm living the Indian dream and also the Australian dream. And it's a I'm very lucky and I acknowledge that. You think you make your own luck? In some ways, but I think we live in a society that favours certain people and if we're looking at it from an intersectional approach, then I would say probably not, just I have so much privilege and I think that has made my luck. And, yes, of course, I've gone and done too many degrees and I have too big a hex debt and, sure, but even in that the ability to go to university, the ability to have a supportive parent, the ability, you know, and I think privilege plays a big part in this. Yeah, an opportunity and timing and... Absolutely. It's your appetite for risk in terms of what you want to step up into as well. Yeah, 100%. And that way I am quite okay to shoulder quite a bit of risk and given 
the impacts would be felt, you know, on myself and obviously my family, but a little wider than that, it's it's nice to be able to find that balance and grow into that risk. And it's almost like stretching for me, you know, like yoga and finding that you can do a bit more than last week is really fulfilling. Yeah, yeah. just getting that just right challenge right. You've named uh, the business the Iceberg Foundation. Is it a not-for-profit or a profit-for-purpose or is it something else? I didn't it, get it, Yeah, that. it's an interesting one. We wanted to be, so we are a not-for-profit in some ways and we wanted to be a public um, benevolent institution, so a PBI, where um, we would be obviously a fee-for-service, but then that any profit that we earn would be used um for reinvested back in the business or reinvested in community in the community mm-hmm. great okay, and got it. so what ended up happening is it's very difficult to become a pbi there's a lot of red tape a lot, a lot of huge bureaucracy and i went why when we can just do it on the back end you know yeah. and so what we do now is any profit that we earn whether a cent or a hundred dollars whatever that is gets put in the elevate the rainbow fund and that's open to the GLBTIQA plus community and the diversity of the GLBTIQA plus community um, for projects by or for, positively for, the rainbow communities. And we've already um, been able to sponsor two really lovely projects. Um, Two people reached out and applied for the fund and got it. And one was um, a group of young people said, we we went to our formal, but it was quite heteronormative. Can we please have a queer formal? And I went, absolutely, I am behind that. And then they played Shania Twain and Destiny's Child all night, and I went, come on. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening here? Were you and not able to approve the playlist? <laughs> oh, this is my tunes, you know. <laughs> come on. But it was a great night. We danced on a rooftop on Wurundjeri, Waiwurrung and Bunurong country. We had face paint. We had games. We had pizza. It was it was a beautiful night. And the other project was um, by an actor named Patrick Livesey who was putting on a performance about the suicide of their mother, an incredible performer, absolutely incredible performer. If you can see any of their stuff, please go see it. And they came to Melbourne with their show Naomi and they had already taught it in Adelaide and in just raving reviews and they said it's it's a story of eight people but it's a solo performance um, of the people around my mum's suicide and their experiences and the story of that and I thought this is incredible what a you know what a divergence of um not a divergence almost this coming together of the mental health aspect and the rainbow communities and so we sponsored that as well through the elevate the rainbow fund so we are a not-for-profit but a creative one I suppose yeah yeah what um what would you like people to know about your clients or your therapy participants Mm. um that's a great question. I think I would love people to know that the bravery it takes to walk into an office, um, the grit it takes to keep coming back, even after sessions are bloody hard. Um, mm. I do EMDR and one of the social workers here does brain spotting that not many people across um, Melbourne or the Kulin Nation do. And so there's a lot of trauma processing going for a lot of our participants. And 
given that we're neurodivergent as a team, mostly um, a lot of people who come are neurodivergent and might have come off after years of being told they were, I don't know, either lazy or silly or whatever that was. And to show up for themselves, I think, is, mm-hmm. is an honour to witness, but it's incredible. I think that's what I would love people to know. Yeah. And do you work with people across different ages or...? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, I'm working with a three year old, which is a lot of fun, but mind you, a lot of running um, up and down. Can you catch me kind of up and down corridors, which I often have to stretch for before those sessions. But <laughs> also working with someone in their 80s around the grief um, of letting go of a life, you know, and their community not being there um, anymore. So definitely across quite a few, like all the ages, um, all of us do. The, uh, our psychologist, Ben, loves working with young people and, you know, a couple of us love also working with teenagers and adults, but, yeah, across the age bracket, but also across the bracket of experiences. So I have experience um, in working in the family violence sector and the drug and alcohol sector, and because I take an intersectional approach to those really figuring out how all of them play on each other. And so does our social worker who's worked overseas in Turkey and brings such a rich experience that we work across even the different cultures and living experiences. In the allied health business world, it's harder than you think to stay on top of everything you need to do to run a business whilst being fully present for your team and clients. If you struggle with this, you're not alone. Pretty much everybody feels this way. Some days you feel like you're crossing a decent task off just to be reminded that you then have three new tasks to take at their place. The to-do list feels like it never ends. It can be overwhelming doing it all on your own and that is why we took it upon ourselves to reach out to help you out. We have created our monthly masterclasses so that you can join and connect with others, learn bite-sized business skills and best of all, walk away from our masterclass with tasks ticked off your list. We can guarantee that each session will provide you with at the very least five gems that you can take and put into action right there and then. And trust us, as soon as you hop off our short and sweet session, you will want to take immediate action because that is the effect that Kathy Love and these masterclasses have. Each masterclass tackles a topic that has been niggling in the back of your mind and has moved further and further down your list. However, the sooner you nip this in the bud, the sooner you will free up your time and see the results in your business. Ready to nip your business woes in the bud and start taking practical action to maximize your results this year? Join one of our monthly masterclasses today. How do you team together around a therapy participant? Amazingly, it often starts with trauma-informed gardening or trauma-informed neurodivergent-informed cleaning where someone goes, "Um, I need someone to help me with my house or I need someone to help me with my backyard whether that is come and please do that with me or, you know, gamification or doubling, whatever. And because our trauma-informed garden cleaner is so amazing, often people go, maybe this is not that bad. Maybe it's okay that I see more like this. Yeah, absolutely. And then often we find they reach out for um, for the peer support, the psychosocial support. Um, and the word psychologist, I think, for a lot of people is quite hard and they think, oof. Yeah. It's going to be big, but because they maybe are seeing the gardener or cleaner and then maybe are seeing the psychosocial um, support worker, they go, actually, maybe therapy is not that bad. And there's a lot of groundwork. So it's not unusual for one person to be seeing a few of us mm-hmm. uh, in the practice. And we have we have staunch principles around privacy. And so if one person shares something, we don't just 
open slather, share it across the practice. But we do build around that person of a team environment to say, how can we best support you holistically? Yep. Yep. How would you like us to work together? Absolutely. And also, what are the barriers? Because sometimes there might be spoons for gardening or cleaning, great, and absolutely no spoons for trauma or going out even. Um, And that's okay. And that communication on behalf of with consent, obviously, and active consent is really important, I think, to a lot of people that we take a little bit of that. Yeah. Before we talk about the self program, which we will talk about, we will, the self model, I'm really curious to hear about how you embrace innovation, not just thinking about it, but actually driving it through day on day. Mm. Mm, With a lot of energy and no caffeine because I don't. (laughs) No caffeine, none. No caffeine, no sugar, just pure adrenaline. Um, Now, I think when you when I hire people, I trust in their creative process and I trust in their living experiences, both people and practitioners. And when you trust in that so wholly, people often come up with incredible ideas. Mm-hmm. And our psychologist and me have been discussing, for example, a therapeutic D&D, Dungeons and Dragons group, and what that would look like for young people versus adults. And just the joy and the privilege of being able to continually innovate and not maybe being bogged down too much by bureaucracy. And for example, we have a team meeting every month and we talk about what is a cool idea? You know, what are some of the wins and how do we continue that for ourselves and the people around us? And again, I think I said this before, but acting out of that sense of our talent and out a sense of trust of who we are rather than desperation of we have to continually innovate to continue to stay relevant. Our relevancy doesn't come from desperation, but rather comes from a trust of who we are and in the mission that we're investing in. Yeah. It's still a real skill, though, to harvest the ideas and to bring them to fruition, if you like, want to kind of throw the cliches out there. What is it that you guys really, really do to get it from idea phase to out there and being tested and stretched? And I think what we do really well is break it down. So if you look at it like that, and even as you were talking to me, I kind of went, oh, that's huge, you know, to think about a tiny kernel of an idea and then having to have this program. But if we break it down to say, if it fails, great. You know, I really enjoy when things fail because I go, great, another way to not build a light bulb, you know, for example. And I think there's a lot of joy in failure and a lot of joy in missing out. And I know for me, one of my mottos is JOMO, which is just the joy of missing out and the joy of failure and being completely okay with failing and being completely okay with people saying to us, Actually, we don't want to partner with you. And whilst that brings up, you know, whatever anxiety is, but knowing that it's okay. So we just break it down. If we were just to succeed in step one, what would that look like? Great, let's get there. Then if we were to succeed in step two, just say maybe, what would that look like? You know, and allowing the process to not be this huge mountain, but just small steps, I think is a real strength of ours. Yeah. And is that kind of roughly along the adventure um, that got you to the self-model? 
Absolutely. Uh, I think you picked that thread well that where we didn't, we started with the whole model around social emotional learning for young people in schools and then completely backed away from that and said, okay, that's not what we want to put in place. What, what does success, if we were to reach for the stars, what would success look like? And then chunk down. And for me, success was teacher well-being being front and center, being invested in, being talked about, being prioritized, being resourced. And from that, we started talking to teachers and I come from a family of teachers who were a little bit disappointed that I didn't become a teacher myself. And this was a way of kind of giving back, but also acknowledging it's a massive passion of mine to have teachers who have been instrumental in my own journey. And I know in the journey of the people who come to therapy to who say I had a teacher who believed in me once and that you know started the process and so the self-model went yeah as you said through a few iterations and we got to where we are now where we provide clinical supervision for teachers where we provide training we provide um, consultation group supervision and but it was absolutely okay if every feedback form came back saying didn't quite land didn't resonate Mm -hmm. And we were okay with that. It was it was a lot of fun getting there, a lot of work, I have to say, and this is where I think my admin team has been incredible, but a lot of fun going, if this bit was to succeed, what would that look like? And the payoff was teachers would feel supported and that was, you know, enough motivation for us to continue on that journey. The SELF model, is the SELF part of it an acronym? Yeah, it is. So it's social emotional learning first. And it's an acknowledgement that teachers already do that. So if a teacher walked into a classroom and students were, I know, up and about and talking and and playing a game, whatever, a teacher would stop and go, hey, we need to sit down, we need to focus. That is the social stuff. And it's the emotional stuff. They do it first anyway. And it's a real acknowledgement of you do that. And it's around yourself. It's around you. You know, it was a great acronym that we that we got to use. And, yeah, it is around teachers do it. How do we support them to continue to do things that come intuitively to them? So what does the model and the program kind of look like just from a, you know, quick, quick, quick walkthrough? Yeah. Um, we, we attend schools and we provide a whole-of-school approach to kind of tackling teacher well-being or addressing teacher well-being and we do the first thing we do is we engage with leadership and part of the model is principals have to be involved and there's been a few schools we've gone to where principals have gone sorry we just don't have the time and we go thank you very much Mm. this is not going to work out you know and so we first meet with leadership and go what are you seeing And from there, we then do youth mental health first aid. We then do training days and um, supervision for teachers, individual and group. And then if the school has a bit of leeway to see, for example, I'm working with a school at the moment who everyone participating are coordinators or in the leadership team. And they said, we really want to use this with the teachers. This is great, but we want to be able to flow on effect. Great. So then we have training around what are some of the nervous system regulation techniques you can use or, you know, how can you use this? So we're incredibly flexible. However, we have six things that we do quite well, starting from youth mental health first aid all the way through to supervision. Yeah. What are you learning through this process of developing and delivering and commercialising, I guess, is the word, like 
Where does your business brain go with this? I think the biggest thing I've learned is whilst I was able to acknowledge quite early on in the piece that there is a massive cultural differences between schools and suburbs and even classrooms. Yeah. That has really come out. That has really, you know, been a beacon in all of this to say that some teachers might go in the classroom and they're having an okay day and it goes all well. And then the next classroom, they don't. And how do we support support those transitions? I'm learning how to do that with teachers. If you have about a minute and a half between one class and another, all right, what do tennis players do between points? How do we get into the third space, for example? Mm -hmm. But what I'm also learning is the goodwill I think, and the investment of off leadership in schools, of principals, of deputy principals, where it's very easy to see an us and them mentality, whereas we're learning that there's actually an us mentality, but they gets lost somewhere just due to pressure, et cetera. Um, I think the last thing I'm learning is just the incredible grit and resilience of teachers and students, but especially mm-hmm. teachers, when they walk into those classrooms day after day, knowing students might be facing a whole range of psychosocial stuff at home, but choosing to invest in making their classrooms safe spaces for their students, I think is incredible. Yeah. What do you think this program is going to look like in three years' time? Um, I would love for it, obviously. <laughs> i just reach for my dream catcher. Oh, it's in the other room. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, wowee, okay. Um you did ask the question, where did my business mind go before? And I didn't answer it. I apologize. But um, for us, it would be that teachers then are able to learn the program and then implement that program in their own school with support from us, right? That's our scaling dream of we're able to support teachers to, to learn to, sorry, deliver youth mental health first aid, to be able to supervise and understand what supervision through the lens of social work looks like and why that's important and in three years I would love that every school in the west has someone who provides teachers with supervision I would love to be a part of an idea where every single classroom has someone who knows youth mental health first aid and can chat to people and can assess and assist and resource and that would be the dream yeah I think I can ask the business brain question again right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would love to, in fact, I was thinking about this the other day because someone asked me the same question and I would love to obviously hire more people and invest in it, but it's an interesting one where a lot of social workers and psychs or counsellors think of when think of working in school, think of working with students um, or think of working with maybe parents and young people don't often think of working with teachers. And so we've put feelers out there of, you know, if people would love to join the program and we haven't actually gotten any bites, which has been interesting Mm -hmm. in itself. Um, I would hope in a while I can step away from some clinical practice and oversee the self-model and, you know, the Iceberg Foundation itself continue running the philanthropic model. But really being able to advocate staunchly for teacher well-being and teacher mental health being prioritised, whether that's to government, whether that's to unions, whether that's to community, um, or whether even that is to parent groups who have quite a bit to do with teacher well-being and it's not often recognised. You know, I would love to play a part in that advocacy piece and get more people researching in this area and get more people investing into teacher well-being, not in a way that, says, okay, if we invest more in teacher well-being, students will be well off 
or better, just more invest in teacher well-being because teachers are incredible and they deserve to have a space they feel that they are prioritised in. I'm wondering about you being a director of a foundation that has a larger cast and a larger reach and a larger brand, reputation, whatever you want. Do you see yourself in that in that role? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. Someone um, have to do it though. <laughs> say that again. Someone might have to do that though. Yes, absolutely. And I... I think I will step into that, obviously, and I would love to take that piece on and grapple with it and make it my own and show up in those ways. And I think it's really important for representation of non-binary people, queer people, you know, neurodivergent people, people on the spectrum to be in those spaces to go, we can make it our own. We can show up in authentically how we are and in who we are in those spaces and it's okay. So yes, absolutely. But right now it's, funny I still go oh I have to write my case notes and I have to you know sometimes I get into clinician mode but have to remember there's a bigger piece out there that can have some really huge impacts and that's where I think I see the Iceberg Foundation we can have some incredibly huge impacts and big reach and I'd love to be able to advocate and champion and lead that into whatever the next three years your dream catcher has you know listed for us and be part of the conversation more broadly across the state and maybe even, you know, interstate. What happens if you don't? A couple of things. I think um, I get to have brunch on a Sunday without thinking of work, which is a great... That (laughs) is worth very deep consideration. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Just the joy of being able to have tinkered. Um, There are a lot of people who get to tinker physically, maybe on, you know, bicycles or cars or whatever that looks like, gardening. Um, I'm a mental tinkerer and the joy of tinkering for years, it doesn't have to mean anything, it's just I got to tinker. But that said, also this idea, I I find that a lot of women and non-binary people or gender diverse people don't often have the space to fail and to fail in an authentic way. Whereas I find men sometimes are afforded that privilege a little bit more of, you know, you're you're allowed time to fail. You're allowed time to kind of grow up and figure it out and whatever. And the, the, I suppose the journey of being able to have been on something because I wanted to, and the joy of being able to and be on something with my family and my partner, and then it amounted just our joy is more than worth it is, I think all I could hope for it. So if it doesn't go that way, great. The journey was incredible and invigorating and worth every single try I've had. Yeah. Risk is a really interesting one, isn't it? It's such a personal one in terms of your readiness to succeed because that can be scary and failure can be scary as well. Mm -hmm. And oscillating between that can be a daily, hourly, occupation if you like yeah I um so my previous my previous career before being a social worker was I was a professional tennis player um and so I came to this country to actually play tennis for this country and it's how I ended up migrating to Australia and so did my family and the great thing I think especially about tennis is there's no one else on the court it is you and your thoughts and hopefully your body shows up that day and you know does what you need it to And in that, you have to be incredibly creative 
as to how you manage the risk of winning, how you manage the risk of high pressure points, how you manage the risk of disappointing yourself and your team, how you manage the risk of showing up and playing the best match and then the the fear of never being able to do it again, right? Or your serve, the risk of fear of your serve finally breaking down kind of mid-set and what do you do with that? And I think that set the foundation for me of, managing risk internally as a person, but also almost managing risk externally of how I project that. Because, again, I got this incredible foundation of playing tennis internationally and whether that's travelling and you know the pressure's on you and going, hey, nothing happened that I didn't grow up to be a professional tennis player. I am still okay. And so when my almost worst fear was realised, and a lot of tennis players have this of what if I fail? And that life turned out to be so much richer and so much bigger and more vibrant than I could imagine. Risks now seem to be, okay, I can do this because I will be okay. It will be okay. Got some perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And an international one too, you know, after migrating to a country and parents moving their whole lives for your tennis career and then at 18 and I lived overseas I grew up um, in the Middle East and in France and spent some time kind of in America and New Zealand kind of going oh yeah thanks for all of that Um, I'm going to go to university in Ballarat (laughs) you know and I just remember my mum's face because I had been um, I was looking at a scholarship to Harvard and it was looking like it would go through and then me going, actually, no, mum, I'm going to go to Ballarat, to um, University of Ballarat, and mum going, okay, well, um, as long as you're happy, <laughs> you know, you feel Love you. <laughs> absolutely, and that is big decisions to have made, and so just the trust that I will make found mm. decisions is lovely. Yeah, yeah. In the last couple of minutes, Please uh, gather your thoughts and any last messages that you would like listeners to to dwell on. Mm. I I'm thinking of of what we stand for, and a lot of people often talk about change being bigger than they are or bigger than who they could be. And I think what I would love people to recognise is. You don't have to be in, a, in an authoritative position to be a change champion or a leader. Um, you don't even need to be having a 20-staff, big office kind of building to be part of an action, really, really significant, impactful change for the communities you represent or that you care about. And small steps really win marathons, right? And so I think I would love people to know that it's okay to fail. There's a great joy in the journey, as cliche as that sounds, and reach out, I think, for support and reach out to people and be part of the change you'd like to see. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Mish. That's all right. No worries at all. Thank you for having me. It's been it's been great. <laughs> there you go. Your first podcast done. Done. It's been such a great experience. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. For the show notes and other resources, our webinar replays, they're all available over on nakercomau 
And if you're loving what you're listening to, please subscribe. We don't want you to miss out on a single thing. And if you want others to get the same benefit that you've had from listening into these episodes, please share this episode and any of the others forward to any of your other allied health business colleagues. And we are totally here for you. Don't forget for a moment that you can jump on in and book that power call and uh, we can see how we can help you get the best of business done. Looking forward to seeing you there.